Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast dedicated to a non-violent, compassionate view of faith. Uh, my name is Dom Fay. I'm joined uh, by, firstly, one of our regulars today, Peter Katz, back on the podcast. Thanks for your time, Peter. Good to be with you, Dom. Thank you. And uh, our special guest today is artist, former priest, non-violence advocate and counsellor, George Tripp. Thank you, George, for making time for the podcast. Thank you, Pam. Now, that obviously is a bit of a scope of, of your life, what you've done. Can you give a bit more of a background, I guess, into into what's brought you here and what your work is? My work at the present time in my life is around nonviolence and peace building. And uh, I have integrated my artwork into my way of presenting. And as a matter of fact, now in my life, I'm trying to use that as my major way of presenting the intellectual framework that invites people to reflect on what they need to do and how they need to present themselves in the world to sustain nonviolent living and to build peace. And I suppose that's going to cover a lot of the scope of today's podcast is things such as uh, self-care, love of self, and and I guess an ability to work through your own pain and suffering mm-hmm. so that you mm-hmm. are able to live a life of nonviolence yeah. instead yes. of projecting. Um, uh, you, you made a comment to me the other day, George, when we were chatting that you said, despite the fact you worked in the church for many years, you never felt like you were in with both feet necessarily. Can you just describe what you mean by that comment? Well, I, I simply would like to leave it that way, if I may, because that story is a long and difficult one in which I felt some betrayal by the church, even before ordination. And I don't feel that it's a creative pathway for me to keep digging that up. Mm. What I would say is that I think by nature, probably by birth and certainly by training, I stand in the mystical tradition of the church, which has never been its mainstream expression. So I've always been a little uh, marching on the other foot with people. And by grace, I think, as I was led in to the church, I was taken by the hand and led out. Well, as we move into a discussion of loving yourself, Peter, I thought uh, a message you gave at the cathedral a few months ago now, I think it's one of your Hall of Fame messages, in my opinion, Um, although you will probably hate that terminology, Uh, was about the implicit commandment. And I just thought I might get you to, I guess, share a little bit on that, because I think it sets a nice framework up for this conversation. Yeah, sure. Sure. Thanks, Dom. Um, Yes, we often say in the Christian tradition that there are two great commandments, to love God and to love your neighbour. But the, uh, the second of those commandments actually has what I think is uh, an implicit commandment, and the full text of that commandment is that you should love your neighbour as yourself. And I often say the problem, the problem with the second commandment is that uh, too many of us actually do that. We actually do love our neighbours as ourselves. And because we don't love ourselves, we love our neighbour accordingly. And so... The second commandment has embedded in it or has, if you like, as its bedrock, this requirement that we actually learn how to love ourselves so that we can love others. So it's actually uh, an invitation to deep transformation and, um, and also an invitation to discover who we really are and to be able to look in the mirror in the morning and say, I love you, which um, for our culture is... Uh, a really scary statement and 
in our culture gets masked by that, and particularly in Australia, that idea of, oh, he loves himself. Mm. And the thing about people who we say that, of, of, about whom we say that, is that they don't actually love themselves at all. That's, that's one of the twists in, in our understanding of, uh, of ourselves. People who truly love themselves are people who have their feet on the ground, uh, understand who they are, understand what their gifts are and apply them, understand what their gifts are not and so don't try to sell themselves as being able to do things they can't. Uh, and once people are in that space, uh, they have the space to be able to love others and they don't need to do it through self-promotion and dismissal of the other or destruction of the other. And the people who we often dismiss as saying, oh, they love themselves are actually people who have a deep pain somewhere and transfer that to others or need to conquer others in order to have a sense of self-worth. I'm amused at Peter's comment because he sounded like my mentor when I was 16, <laughs> telling me that uh, the problem with the world is we loved each other as little as we loved ourselves. Mm. And that was the issue that we were all facing. The other thing is that in our work in Pace Beni, Australia, one of our fundamental principles is inner leads to outer. And so in order to have a strong foundation for peace work and for building peace and living nonviolently day by day, we have to start with that same attitude toward our own souls and to love ourselves. Uh, for me, the... Um, kind of shocking thing I've had to come to grips with over the years is to realize that this person that I am was God's first gift to me. And I came here just as he wanted me to be mm. in my frailties and in my vulnerabilities and a bit of problems with my anatomy, but it's, it's the gift I was given. And it is unthinkable that we can justify having contempt for the gift that God gives us above all, which is ourselves. So growing to love ourselves to me is a fundamental priority in the way of the Christ. Yet I think it is often spoken about with some guilt. You know, love of self is yeah. seen as a very selfish thing to do, perhaps an arrogant thing to do. Yes, we were talking about joy last yes. week when we met yeah. J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, oneself third. I find that a very destructive attitude. Uh, I would turn it around and say, I have to start with me. That's why I get up and write in my journal in the mornings, try to record my dream trail stories, ask myself uh, what's pissing me off, what's bugging me, what's frightening me, how I'm feeling about the day. And then I can step into my life with others on a more secure footing and hopefully a more loving and compassionate way. You made the comment to me, George, in a conversation we were having the other day that, that you think a, the vast majority, in fact, I think you you said you would almost want to say all of the pain that we cause others comes from pain within ourselves we have not processed. Well, I think that's true. I think we project our crap, our unfinished business out wildly onto others. This is now that the word I'm hearing that's kind of buzzy is othering. We are constantly creating the objective other out there, and usually in a negative sense. Those people who are maybe a, of persons of color or darker skin than I have, or from a different ethnic background or religious tradition, those others are the problem. 
Uh, I grew up in America in the 1950s and 1960s, and it was clear that African Americans particularly carried that negative projection on the part of white America, appallingly so, very deeply, and I don't know that that's really fully been healed by any any stretch of the imagination. So the the problem ongoing is that we other others with our unfinished business. Mm. And the real task uh, for me as one who is uh, given to the Jesus story and the Jesus agenda is to love me that gift that I am regardless of how uh, sometimes humiliating I can be and how screwed up I can be and how many bizarre and sometimes profound mistakes I can make, my task is to open my arms to myself and love myself in such a way that I can then offer you, possibly, the same compassion when you present yourself in your brokenness to me. I guess then... to be an agent of love and peace and healing in the world, you actually do have to start with yourself. That You, I, you can't do those things unless you have done them Absolutely agree first. with that. I, that's what I've given my life to now and my practice as a therapist and spiritual director is helping people come home to themselves to wrap their arms around themselves and give themselves a hug. And as Peter said, to say, I love you in the morning in the mirror and mm. and kind of give yourself a little pat and say, <laughs> you're, you're not such a bad guy <laughs> or girl or woman or whoever we're talking about. Um, self-love is really the core of it, the core of it. There's a lot of societal messaging, I suppose, that, that would indicate you're not enough, whether it's, you know, your body doesn't look like it should or mm. you don't have the, the house that you should or the amount of friends perhaps that you should. And often people experience in religion a similar thing, that you don't pray enough, you don't attend enough, mm. you don't give enough. There's always this sense coming through that you are not enough. What's the counter-narrative that you know that that a faith can give you to to that story i would take it out of uh, jung's work as you know i'm deeply committed to the psychology of jung from the time i was 15 and his whole concept of individuation which is the process of growing into the fullness of ourselves is a process of dialogue with the unconscious out of which emerges my path as an individual and unique expression of humanity, not isolated from community, in fact, deeply immersed in community, but still my path. I walk my way, you, Dom, walk yours, Peter walks his. That's what we do. And and I would hope that within the context of the Christian community and the faith tradition, we would encourage people to discover that path, to name it, to have the courage to walk it, and to recognize that we each bring unique expressions of humanity, unique gifts to each other by doing that. Um, if if I was going to name a, a tragedy of contemporary life, I would say it's the desire to clone. And uh, cloning through wardrobe is what a lot of young people do. Uh, cloning through attitudes and ideas is often what people take on. Self-reflection drives me to that place within where I have to say, what is it I stand for? Where are my feet placed? What is it I believe? And what is it I'm willing to work for with my life and my energies, my resources, 
in my way, and it will be different from anybody else's. So what, what do we do with the stuff that stands in the way of that? Whether it's a feeling of, of uh, I don't know, a pressure from others to conform, mm. whether it's our own inner monologue. I mean, I know in myself the, the voices that will come out telling me that I am too loud or perhaps that I don't look as I should. All these voices. What do we do with, with, mm. with that side of it that stands in the way? Well, for me, that the building of the individual identity, building of the individual soul path starts from within. I'm uh, given to the dream. We've had that bit of conversation. And I've been following my own dream trail for now 60 years and am deeply grateful for all that it has given me. And in that process, we confront or we engage at particular times that are right for us, those pressures from the outside world, the family, the religious tradition, the culture, we'll take those on and deal with them one by one. We're actually not in much of a rush. Uh, and those things come through the dream as we're ready. When I was a youngster, I was asking my first therapist about hypnotherapy. And I don't want to disparage that as being very useful in some senses. But his point was it often brings material to our consciousness before we're ready to handle it. Whereas the dream presents what you're now ready for. As we were talking earlier, I said perhaps it's a particular image comes to you because this is the time for that image. This is the time for that agenda. This is the time to deal with that. So little by little, I will address the social pressures, the familial pressures, certainly in my family, and the uh, gender issues of my culture, all of that will get addressed as I go. If I will listen to the soul and walk the soul's path. Uh, that, that's something we should probably explore a little more deeply. Because I, I think for a lot of people, certainly in my experience, dreams are nothing more than something you have some nights, then quickly forget. Maybe after you've had a cheesy dinner, there's, they're a bit more uh, strong than they otherwise can be, as, as some people tend to say, um, rather than a tool that can actually help us realize the things we are struggling with, the things that are, are plaguing us, you know, more than just about anything else can shine light on them. So can you just, uh, and this might be a difficult task, George, but give a bit of a summary as to what the power of, of looking at your dreams is, what what we can learn there. Well, from I suppose I would pick up uh, some work from John Sanford and Mort Kelsey, both of whom were personal mentors of mine and with whom I did therapeutic work as a youngster. Uh, John Sanford, or Jack as I knew him as a boy, referred to in one of his books as uh, the language of God, dreams, God's forgotten language was the title of the book. And the theology that these two men and Robert Johnson kind of shaped together by bringing Jung and Christianity together was to say that the, the dream is the voice of God speaking. So why would an intelligent, faith-minded person ignore it? But we haven't been taught that by and large by the church. Morton Kelsey, in one of his books, put forward the idea that the dream fell out of use in the church as the church bureaucratized and claimed corporate power over the people. In the early church, you will find good records in the, in the documents that the dream was seen as a primary way 
that the Spirit of God was speaking to us, to you, to me, to Peter, and day by day, night by night. And the astonishing, the astonishing thing is, we dream three to five times a night, and they're tailor-made for each of us. 7.2 billion dreams, dreamers, every night, getting tailor-made stories. Now that's, to me, a divine resource. Mm. And that's where I would begin building a kind of trust. The other thing about them is, is I notice that people develop a deep sense of personal authority as they listen. The problem is we live in an age that tends to be literalistic and reductionist. The dreams are poetic, they are symbolic, they're sometimes hilariously playful, and other times sternly, sternly warning of us. And we have to then learn to give time and effort and energy to decoding, considering the symbols and what they mean to us. Spend time with the soul. I would suggest that a, a culture of extreme capitalism doesn't much value that as a way of life. The Jewish uh, culture says that uh, a dream unexamined is a gift left unopened. Mm. Yes. Has that been, I guess, working through learning from your dreams, Peter, has that been a big part of your journey as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was much inspired by the work of John Sanford and Morton Kelsey early in my ordained life. And for me, it just... Because the thing that drew me into church was was mystical experience, um, and so the dreams and dream work is just part of how we have this sense of us being truly incarnated and the spirit speaking to us in our time. Dreams have a an amazing prominence in the Old and New Testaments, and it's completely befuddling that the church locked that source of divine inspiration out but you know we've the church has tried to do that it's a way of, of keeping the spirit quiet um, we've done the same thing by turning the scriptures into the holy bible and the the source of all wisdom it was not in the bible it didn't happen that's you know, his turning but the bible into history all of that sort of stuff it's a it's a way of making sure that people conform uh, it, that idea that george mentioned about cloning um, the the Gospels are really about people being liberated and liberation theology would invite us to discover our true selves, what it is to be set free from all the things that oppress us and hold us back. Um, our system and our culture is very much into control and order and uh, that's an increasing phenomenon. And so... The, the mystical tradition in the church and other faith traditions is 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 the radical edge. You know, it was Thomas was Thomas Merton sitting in his cell who predicted the race riots in the USA. Mm, mm, mm. Sitting yep. sitting at a distance, yes, he could see more clearly. And we are at a time now where, I, from my point of view, the de the imperial church is deconstructed. It is broken. Hallelujah. And uh, yeah, and and really, it's a very exciting time cool. because the 21st century and forward forms that the Christ way can take 
are just mind-boggling in terms of excitement, but also in terms of challenge and having the courage to step, really step outside of the box and try something new. Well, that's a, a fair point to touch on because, you know, I think a lot of the religion people are attracted to promises certainty, promises clarity, promises, you know, maybe five answers to this problem or a book with, you know, 10 ways to solve depression or whatever it might be. Whereas I suppose the way you're discussing and dealing with these things is is infinitely more complex. Well, but I think that in terms of that, that what Peter said just a few minutes ago takes me again to that, that place. Yes, it's a time of great uncertainty, but the mystical experience invites the individual to ground himself, root, anchor herself in the reality of divinity. Beyond uncertainty, there is a sense that the divine life is as close to me as my skin. And all I have to do is pause for a moment and take a breath, and we are there. And that's the anchor on which we can then base engagement with the uncertainties of contemporary life. See, I, I, think, I think there are deep certainties that one uncovers through the mystical tradition and the deep certainty is, one, you are. Two, you are unique. Three, you're uniquely loved. And you are uniquely called. They are four, they're four things that I think are absolutely certain. And they're the things, I've, they're the things I try to convey whenever we celebrate baptism. Because I think baptism actually uh, enshrines that reality for us. Uh, every time we do a baptism in our rite, we do a bit that's called the christening, where we uh, anoint the person with oil and make the sign of the cross. And the cross that I use is the X for the first, uh, first letter of the word Christos, Christ. And I say to the families... Little Charlene is a Christ, and what that means is that she is called, uniquely called, and she's called to be herself. Because in the whole history of the universe, there's going to be one Charlene. And if she doesn't sort out what it is to be herself, to exercise her particular gifts, then the, the universe will be robbed of that experience for all of time. And that the church's call is to work out how to support Charlene in the process of discovering who she truly is and what her call is. And what does that process look like? Well, that's where the uncertainty comes in because that's where we then have to enter into, we have to do the work. We actually have to enter into the process of engaging with our dreams, learning about who we are, learning about our reactions, Listening when other people tell us that we're actually good at stuff. Imagine what the world would look like if people actually, when when someone said to them, you know, you're really good at that, if people said, oh, actually, yeah, actually, I think I probably am, rather than, oh, no, no, Well, yeah. Peter, you've just hit one of my buttons, but go <laughs> ahead, please. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that, that, that for me is what baptism is. Yeah. And mm. on that whole cloning thing, you know, one of the points I make is that even if we do clone people, uh, each of those 
individuals will still be unique, mm. as happens with, indivi- with identical twins. Mm. The way the brain forms, the way the, the neurons form into the neural network in our heads is unique. So once we come to terms with the fact that the universe gets one go at us, not only, it's not just that we only get one go at ourselves, but the universe only gets one go at us, then we actually have this almost, you want to use the word obligation, we have this obligation to, I have an obligation to do Peter Cat. Yeah, I refer to as that as the ethical imperative that comes out of the Gospels. That my the ethical imperative for me is to be me, and to help you be you. It's, it's really very simple. And that's that's the thing. It's a mutuality. It's about. Yes, yes. It's not about me just for cr- carving out a space so that I can be Peter Cat. It's about me also helping George be George, and also realizing that I will be my true self when George is his true self. Yes. And that as we build a community, we actually do make each other. We are very dependent on our relationships mm. and we mm. form and deform each other all the time. That we are the product of our relation. You see it happen all the time in funerals. A funeral, a funeral eulogy, if it's done appropriately, uh, is a bunch of people actually saying, in summary, I would not be myself except for the fact that Mavis existed. Yes. She has helped to make me who I am. And, and I see the whole resurrection concept there being is that Mavis actually continues on in that person. They will hear her voice at critical times in their life and they will follow the modelling that she gave them. And mm. so when we give our best modelling to one another, we actually help each other to flourish. And when we deform each other, we actually create other... <laughs> other needs and um, other processes that we need to engage in. But there's this incredible mutuality in the project. I become more fully myself the more I enable and uh, allow others to be fully themselves. Well, it, it, it's interesting. It does seem to me, though, that the, the alternative that people experience often of that is when they, you say we're dependent on each other, when they are overly dependent, when they are so unhappy with themselves or unable to love themselves that they need another to complete them. And that's where we see the the idea from the film Jerry Maguire of Tom Cruise saying, you complete me. Mm. Um, why, why is this model of relationship and of interaction different to that one? Well, because ours is based on the divine dance of the Trinity, where it's uh, mutuality, interrelationship, uh, always each of the partners giving of themselves to the other. So... That, that idea of you complete me is a, is a ownership taking to oneself. There's a control element in that. Um, and in, in the, way w- the way I would affirm it is that it's about us learning who we... You know, I, I, I need to know who I am so that I can be my best self in relationship. And if that's, in terms of, if that's expressed in a form of a dependency, that's usually because I'm not being myself. And from from my experience uh, now as an older man and also widowed and living with some disability, I have had to learn to think more like a spectrum. So on one end is independence, and there are times when I really have to 
get myself in the chair and do something for myself at the computer or whatever it is or make that cold turkey call or whatever. Other times I'm on the other end and I let people help me. I have three grown children and grandchildren and they all look after me and there are times when I just have to let them do. I mentioned to you earlier we were talking about my trip to Africa and I was well taken care of and there's a there's a quiet humiliation in being looked after that was hard for me to accept but uh, there are times when that's okay just as there are times when it's okay to think for yourself do for yourself and there's this fluidity in between of interdependence and mutuality uh, that we actually can't do anything without each other uh, I like the Ubuntu thing that comes out of South Africa uh, I am because you are. Or the, there's a phrase I hear out of South Africa now, better together, better together. Mm. Uh, and that kind of thing touches a deep chord in me. But we need to think more about how these things are fluid. Uh, there are some days when I need to be independent, some days when I let people do for me, and I, all I can say is thank you. You mentioned to me, George, and we have brought this up a few times already, that earlier in the week before this podcast, you and I did catch up for a bit of a conversation. And you did mention there the problem of a particular translation uh, in the the Bible of, I think it's, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, and, and the damage that can cause. Yeah, I, I have a feeling you know of this one as well. Matthew five forty eight, uh, the word perfect in in Greek doesn't mean perfection in the English sense at all. It means to be complete and whole and well-rounded. Teleos is the Greek word. And I think it has done enormous damage because often I think in, in terms of actual dynamic practice, perfection is achieved by exclusion, getting rid of, whereas the wholeness of our lives, our wholeness is a goal, is about including. I think Christianity is about radical inclusivity, radical inclusivity, mm. revolutionary. We don't dis uh, discard tribal things. I mean, this morning I had a wonderful talk with a guy about his Scottish heritage, and I'm doing a lot of thinking about my Polish background because relatives are coming to visit. Uh, and I love all that stuff, and it's important. But beneath that, the anchoring reality is the oneness of all humanity. Uh, radical inclusivity or revolutionary inclusivity, I think, is at the core of what Jesus is on about. That's his, his agenda for us. So if we can find that wholeness in ourselves, uh, you know, acceptance of the good and the bad and the love yeah. through it, then we are able to go out and be in relationship, we are able to, to, I guess, experience relationship without being completely dependent on relationship. Mm. But the first step of that obviously is, you know, finding that, that wholeness within ourselves. Mm. And, mm. Mm. you know, from my own personal experience from friends of a similar age and, and some significantly older as well who have confided in me, there is so much about ourselves that we just dislike that, that, you know, whether others have told us it's bad or we believe it is bad that we just really dislike. It's why Peter, when you made that comment, you made it on a podcast before that every morning you look in the mirror and you know that you are loved. And I thought that was such a profoundly fascinating concept because of how rare 
that idea is, how much self-loathing, how much self-judgment, how much self-exclusion there is. Mm. So what is what is that, I guess, that journey towards not being perfect, but, but perhaps being whole? Well, again, for me, the, the dream gives you daily input, if you want, mm. daily input in, into the agenda of the day or the agenda of the time. And my experience is that they over and over again lead us more and more toward a deep acceptance of ourselves. Uh, as we come to know some of those less societally approved characters, or socially unacceptable people in us, and learn to love them and to know that they are there in that character because they are wounded and they need to be loved by us, uh, then I think we begin to grow into a more a, a place of greater compassionate capacity, if I can say it that way. Some people might be thinking, last night I had a dream about a never-ending pit of fairy floss. How on earth is there is there anything to be read into that? Surely that's just my mind being uh, existing in the absurd. Where, can you? Is there perhaps an example or, or some way you could illustrate just what our dreams can teach us? Well, I can share one that I had, but uh, let me just say that my experience over 60 years is I have never seen a meaningless dream. Never. And I don't use the word never very often, but what is a problem is sometimes they are comical, theater of the absurd, you would like that phrase, uh, but they challenge us to stop and think, and we've got to then really work on decoding the symbols present in them. The dream that I tell often when I'm teaching dream material about myself is about a dream that was warning me, and it was a guidance dream. And in the dream, I was physically unwell. So my wife and I went to see the doctor, the GP. And the doctor told me that I had an infection in my testicles and he was going to cut them off. I protested, <laughs> as, as you might have guessed. <laughs> Stranger. <laughs> and he said, okay. He said, I'll give you a year to clear this up or I'll go ahead and do the surgery. And then I began within the week to meet with an analyst, a Jungian analyst I had met. And I stayed with him for five years, beginning a deeper and deeper traveling of the dream trail, listening to the soul, sorting through where the wounds were and what could and needed to be healed at that time. So that dream was suggesting something uh, It was a guidance. I was being told, look, you're being cut off from your creative life energy. What are you going to do about it? Hmm. That is the symbol of the testicles. That's where a man's creativity comes from. It's the creativity that affects the whole human race because that's where the next generation comes from. And I was, I was losing all of that. It was going to be taken from me. It was infected. My creativity, my generativity was infected, and I had to act. Hmm. Or dreams are not sentimental. I was told either you do it or you pay the price. We've, we're dying in sentimentality, I think, sometimes in Western culture, but the dream work is not sentimental. You either engage or you suffer. Make your choice. So keep a book next to your bed. And Not a bad idea. My sainted mother used to write hers in the middle of the night in shorthand, <laughs> which I always thought was 
noble beyond beyond <laughs> the call, but never mind. Now, I, I, I write mine whenever I can catch them, maybe three, four times a week. Because you do lose them very quickly. If you yeah, are. they'll go quickly. If you, I wake up sometimes and wake up thinking about having to make a podcast with Dom and <laughs> get so caught up in it that I lose the track of the dream. <laughs> but uh, not every day. I catch them, and I'm grateful for them. And some of them are perplexing, challenging. I have a colleague who I can go and spend time with. I do that fortnightly, and we go through the material and just listen, and I, I get another person's perspective on my journey which I find enormously helpful. This is a modern psychological version of the ancient path of the spiritual director. And that, thank God, is being recovered in the church, although sometimes I don't know how well-trained they are. But the fact is it's here. And people are learning to listen in the presence to, of another person with their soul, to their souls, which I think is a always positive step moving forward. So I suppose the, the dream is a window. It's an opportunity in to see what is actually going on that mm. you're missing in your consciousness. Yeah, I, I think they warn us. They do say, get back on track. They sometimes console us and say, that was a good decision. They give us guidance. No, instead of this, go that way. Have you been thinking about? That's okay. They're very illuminating in that regard. And that the, the value of them, from my point of view, is they're autonomous. We cannot control the content. Years and years ago, when uh, I was in work in California, a, an analyst met with a group, and uh, was they were doing dream work. And they all decided they would have a dream that week. And they were going to dream about hands. <laughs> and they did. But every dream was tailored to the individual. We don't control the content. It is an involuntary psychic product. That's what Jung calls it. And its value is it, it bypasses the sensorial nature of the ego conscious. Mm. It presents what we really need to hear, not what we want to hear. <laughs> and, that's the, and that is profoundly spiritual because, quite frankly, there's a lot in the Gospels we don't want to hear. It's very uncomfortable and inconvenient. <laughs> Interpreting a dream, though, can, I imagine, to, to many others, including myself, seem something like a, approaching a foreign language. You're it looking at symbols. You're looking like, yeah. you're, you're wondering, how do I make sense of this? What is this yeah. trying to tell me? Are there resources or techniques you can use to try well, to decode I think that? there are some good things. Robert Johnson uh, has written a lovely book called Inner Work, and he's got four steps in there. I mentioned those. I think that the, one of the first things is you, you list the nouns in a dream the persons, the people, and the places, and you make a personal association with each. And uh, then you try to catch the movement of the dream. I look for, for turning points in a dream. When does something shift, starts out well and goes badly? What happened at that moment that causes that to happen? Another step is to try to give it a title. Where's the real core of the dream? And finally, uh, Robert, Johnson makes a wonderful suggestion. That is, if you have a meaningful dream, create a ritual to honor it. Because you're saying to the soul, I value you. Thank you for speaking up. And the ritual doesn't have to be rocket science. I had a dream as a, a young man in my 20s of riding on a train. And sitting across from me was my mother and my father. And sitting next to me was my wife. 
My parents divorced when I was five. I have no recollection of speaking about them in the same sentence, much less more than once seeing them in the same room. And here we were. And my father handed me a diamond ring to give to my wife. Heritage, legacy, tradition. It was a very meaningful dream. So to honor the dream, I called my mother on the phone because she was at her office about 25 miles away, and I wrote my father a note because he was in the eastern United States. As simple as that. And I didn't say anything about the dream. I just said, thinking of you today, mm. which I was. <laughs> and likewise with my mother, how are you going? How's work? So you find little rituals. Johnson tells the one for himself where he just walked around a block where he grew up just took a walk around the block. And that's incarnating, if you will, the dream, making physical your connection with your inner story. I find it bizarre that, you know, being in the Christian tradition my whole life at 24, this is the first I'm hearing about dream work. Because um, I even think back, I've often quoted that, that one of my favorite passages is uh, Jacob awaking from his dream in Genesis and saying, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know mm -hmm. it. The 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 awareness from his dream that the divine is in all things. Mm. Um, I know you've touched on this already, Peter, about, you know, that obviously the move towards conformity means that dreams lose their, their place. But have you seen a rediscovering in, can can an institution rediscover this or is it only ever going to be able to be something people do individually? Oh, I think the, uh, I think the tradition is learning slowly but surely to re honor the mystical. Um, I think it's one of the great gifts of being in the church at this time. The mystical practices and practice practice as as a thing is actually being rediscovered. Um, there are different parts of the church of, who've always honoured it. Um, the, Jesu the, the Jesuits and their, and their spiritual exercises is a form of um, dream work. That's right. Um, mm. In that it invites people to set up the gospel story and then see what happens. So you actually imagine yourself in, with Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus and then let it go. And that's a sort of a waking dream. And um, so you know, people like Lewis Savory, um, who wrote Dream Work, um, pick up on that tradition. So I think parts of the church, it's a bit like meditation. The, there are large slabs of the church that never lost meditation but were quietly sitting doing it and other people who didn't know that the church did it. Um, I think in our age, as, as practice becomes important because we live in a culture that doesn't honour practice and people can see what that does to them and so people seek practice, um, the time is right for large slabs of the church to re-engage with this and if the church doesn't it will only we either hanker after the old christendom model which is all about power and control yes. and conformity mm -hmm. and cloning or we become the leaven in the lump the the small little radical group of people who have done the work have an alternate vision which jesus called the kingdom i call the commonwealth um and through practice and dream work, uh, resource find themselves resourced for the work and and sustained for the work. And for me, it's the it's the quiet prayer, the contemplation, my own um, journaling, and that sort of stuff that actually sustains me for what I do day to day and sustains me through the 
the switching that needs to happen in ministry um, and, and allows me to keep that real sense of most of the time being quite grounded and that's, that comes from that whole beautiful tradition of the church. The, the very thing that in, in actually invited me to, to join the church. Mm. Another key concept, I guess, tying into the dream work, into that journey to self-love, George, is the inner village. Um, I'd just love if you could unpack the the concept of the inner village, because that is another thing we discussed the other day, which has really helped me over the past week and is, is I think, a fascinating insight. Well, I, I stumbled on this close to 40 years ago now in my own inner work and uh, I wouldn't say I, I, and I'm responsible for its creation. I'm hearing that it's popping else, up elsewhere. And that pleases me. But what I think what we're moving away from is a, a, a concept that says the mature person is the singular person who knows in every instance exactly what he believes and wants to do or what she must do. This idea of singularity as being maturity. And uh, the village offers us an opportunity to engage all of the various aspects of ourselves in a form that we understand because they take human form mostly, sometimes animals, but nevertheless in forms with which we can relate. So one could say it's a gimmick, it's a practice, it's a way of engaging. For me, it's very, very powerful because it's allowed me to objectify some of my overwhelming feelings sit them over here so we can then talk so i feel like my ego has some sense of separation from say my anger or my hurt or my rejection and these become as we say part of me mm. rather than all of me and part of me is the buzz phrase that really sets us free that I, yes i can be very angry in situations like I watch in this culture today around asylum seekers and refugees. Part of me is angry. Part of me is grieving. Part of me is insistent that we keep pushing for a new way. So there are very different people in the village representing these. And to me, it opens up a wonderful way of being at home with oneself. It's also allowed me then to uh, have imagery to engage and embrace those parts of me that I might have otherwise pushed aside or neglected. Uh, there are some real, um, real shit stirrers in my village <laughs> and people who will cause trouble and people who've been in profound and deep pain. And, uh, but now they're in the village and one of the things we work on in, in me as we work together is to make room for each other, to give each other a sense of security and safety, and to feel loved. It was particularly true for me around my the children in my village. Often they were discovered to be in distress, and usually they were the age at some point when there was distress in my life. But they're now in the village, and they live in a hut together, and they've got a housemaster, probably about your age, Dom, <laughs> who looks after them, and they play and run through the village, and they're happy and they're safe. And I'm no longer beleaguered by those childhood traumas and wounds because I have brought them into the village of my own soul and made sure they're well taken care of. 
there's, there's a lot of beautiful mental imagery involved in that. But yes. a, a, one you gave me the other day was this idea that inside your soul is a whole bunch of people sitting around a campfire. Yes, a campfire. I heard that this morning from somebody else, and yeah. a very dear friend of mine with whom I've done this work, well, did this work for over 40 years before he died. His village met around a campfire and uh, had great conversations. My village is made of a bunch of huts which all face inward to a circle, and in the circle is a great big tree of life growing, and people sit around on stone benches, and that's where we have our chats. I've got a guy in my village whose name is Back, because as I think I've told you, I have a lower back problem from birth, and there are times when he's simply laying on a pallet. Uh, he's not able to get up, but then we'll go and on, we'll talk, and he'll say, look, I'm okay, it's just a bad day. Or he'll say, would you stop stuffing your anger in my face? <laughs> and he'll let me know whether or not the pain I'm carrying is a simple biological or medical or, or pain of anatomy or whether it's a psychological thing where I'm abusing myself. So conversation with him can be very, very helpful. And this has made its way into culture. I know there's been a, a concept recently of people naming their anxiety. Yeah. Um, and that that has actually made the anxiety much less powerful because I guess it's made them realize that it's just part of them. Yeah. Yeah. It, isn't, it isn't all of them. And it sets up a potential for dialogue. And for me, one of the key words of the faith tradition and the psychological tradition is dialogue. The dialogue with the soul, dialogue with Christ, dialogue with God through prayer, dialogue with the trees, dialogue with nature, dialogue with, with whatever it can be, including these people in the village, that it's all about ego consciousness or the rational consciousness, knowing how to keep the conversation going with all these incredibly wonderful, colorful, bizarre, and sometimes a bit weird people. But that's who we are. How good is that? And our um, coming to terms with our community also gives us a sensitivity to others. Um, I know when my when my son was born and he was a little child and uh, something triggered the idea of, you know, what if, what if someone was ever to harm him? I remember re coming to terms with the fact that, that myself, who I'd always thought was a pacifist, uh, had within, within me was this person or part of me who was capable of cold, calculated murder. I, thinking about someone harming my son, um, I realised that I could dispassionately or very passionately take my time to plan the destruction of another human being if they did that to him and that I would do it. I it couldn't be dismissed as a fit of emotional... Um, being a, I, I would be able to take my time to plan it and to physically rip them apart. Mm. Mm. And so in that process, I had to think, oh, within my community, of in, in the Peter Cat community, there is a cold someone who, if the circumstances were correct, would be a cold-blooded murder. And I had to, through my work with my spiritual director, I had to turn around to that person and say, hello, Peter, <laughs> uh, you belong here. 
Yes. You, know, you you yes. are you are part of yeah. who I am, uh, and you are part of me. And it gave me uh, an appreciation of murderers that stops me from othering or invites me to stop othering people who've committed murder because I realise that if the circumstances were right, that would be me. Yes. Yep. And I would be unrepentant. I mean, it was mm-hmm. this this mm-hmm. bit of me was was a really Hannibal Lecter scary. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Could I could do that? Yeah. Only under those circumstances, I thought. But who knows? What else is there is to be discovered? And so the the more we discover our own potential, uh, other people's life circumstances ceases to be so distant. And it was really scary, you know having that self-revelation and the temptation was to as quickly as I'd had that realization to put the lid back on the box and pretend it had never been but that sort of invitational aspect the dream work opens one two is once you see something like that you say oh shucks (laughs) I have to face this and it would be good for me to face it because there's a sense in which I'm actually more comfortable about who I am as a result of that, even though you know, I've now declared <laughs> to the world that you know, I'm capable of being cold-blooded murderer. But I think what happens is that we're no longer a surprise to ourselves, and so we do become more comfortable. Yeah, I think we right. can live with ourselves. I recently, in talking with uh, someone, uh, he were talking about doing the inner work thing, and He said, I'm afraid to go there because I'm afraid of who I'm going to find. And I've run into that over and over again. And, of course, I say it's a wise person who resists (laughs) the process (laughs) because it isn't easy. But the precise story that Peter tells carefully, I mean, closely parallels my own when my children were young, that I would do anything to protect them with ferocity and uh, would be happy to destroy anybody who tried to destroy my children. So... While it's unnerving and, in a sense, humbling or humiliating, it's also a sign of the deep, fierce passion that we human beings are capable of in terms of loving. Mm. Uh, it, uh, to me, it's a great gift. and I, I live more comfortably like Peter with myself because I know that's there. And I don't, therefore, have to other the murderer and say, well, you, you're the bad person and I'm too cool for words. It's not like that at all. We're all brothers and sisters under the skin in more than one way. Um, And their circumstances are such that perhaps their boundaries collapsed, their restraints gave way, and they did things that they then have to be caught up in society for. So how do we love then those parts of ourselves that could commit murder, that could commit adultery, that could cheat, lie and steal, those parts of us that we have to acknowledge are, are there, that are in our village and we can only put the lid on them for so long without some real damage occurring. My experience is whenever we, we confront an adversary, the relationship shifts very quickly to being an alignment, uh, an, a relationship of alignment. So adversarial gives way to some desire. The, a person who chases us in a dream really wants our attention for some reason and often a good reason and often brings good news but we are all locked into this ego conscious 
way that we live and it's got boundaries and borders and it's supposed to be right and good so that when anything new comes we are uh, set you know we're kind of set off on our balance richard rohr says somewhere that every change that we engage begins with humiliation of the ego we get knocked around and we get knocked off our pins or whatever but my experience is that these adversarial people do not wish to harm us that they really just want attention they want our attention they want to give us something often something good what, what do you mean like what could be the good thing that they are trying to give us well we may not know till we ask <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an example mm. uh, of a, a woman who came to me many 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 years ago now uh, she worked in the beauty industry and she would come to our appointments uh, appropriately made up and with nails to die for. And uh, she had a, an image of a snaggletooth old hag with hair all over the place looking like a bag lady in her psyche. And she wouldn't go near her for months. And finally I said, come on, you know, come on, give, give it a shot. So she tried. She invited her, and I said, "Get her and have a give her a cup of coffee, a tea, and sit down." They did, and she then gave you. Know, they got a shower, and she cleaned her up. This woman became her confidant and her guide, her wise old lady. She came in the guise of this challenging thing, the very opposite of everything she was doing with her life, beauty and appearance. And when she took the chance and they had the courage to engage her she found a, war, a source of wisdom in her own soul she didn't know existed and that happens over and over again there's there certainly is an image thing where there's there's an idea of how we all would like to be perceived yes. whether it's yes. clever funny charismatic good looking whatever there's there's certain ways we want to be perceived and anything that doesn't align with those ways the gut instinct is to push it down, yeah. to pretend it hasn't happened, mm. um, and and to hate those parts of ourselves that don't align with the image we're trying to mm. project. I had a friend recently who, and he won't mind me sharing this story, told me how he's struggling at the moment because he will call somebody the moment he gets in the car because he can't even face a 10-minute drive on his own in silence. Mm. Mm. And he, he is aware that that must mean there is something going on inside of him that he does not want to confront. Mm. And we just build distraction mechanisms and ways to avoid it. So I suppose the invitation is stop running and turn around and look it in the eye. Yeah. Or turn off the radio or mm. unplug the computer or whatever it is. But And we see it today. We, we can get up in the morning and from the moment we're up until the time we go to bed, we can distract ourselves with one thing and another. And uh, yeah, the, the trick is to stop that, stand still and look one safe oneself in the eye, if you will, and say to the other, what, 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 what are you doing here? What do you want? What do you bring me? What do you want from me? Mm. Whatever it is. I have a lovely uh, picture at home. It's a photograph of a painting that hangs at Richard Rohr's hangout in New Mexico. And it's of a, a man, a colorful kind of a body shape, and he's hugging a man all in black. He's hugging his shadow. It's really quite lovely. And that's, that's the whole thing. Put your arms around the guy that's suffering. Put your arms around the child that in your soul that's crying 
I often say to clients, if you walked into a room and a five-year-old was sitting there crying on the floor, would you kick it? Would you not go over and say, oh, dear, what's wrong? Let me help you. Pick them up, do something. Well, do it with yourself, with your own soul. It's a constant embrace. That, for me, isn't the big image. Open your arms and hold close to your soul, your chest, your heart, the one who is coming, the one who's in need, the one who's angry, the one who's hurt. Just hold on. And I suppose to do that, you do have to, in some way, detach yourself from that being your whole identity. As you mentioned, that that, that my yeah. sadness, my anger, my jealousy is just part of me. Part of me, that, yeah. That, and that, needs loving. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's, uh, that's a pretty beautiful way, I think, to end it. Actually, before we do end it, because obviously this does all tie into nonviolence, is confronting that within ourselves to then be able to mm. to be a- a agents of peace and change and, and love and nonviolence. Um, you told an amazing story uh, the other day when we were chatting, George, um, relating to the pink shirt at the school in Canada. <laughs> and I just thought, in terms of finding creative ways to diffuse violence... I thought this would be a a nice way to end. Well, it's a a story that I picked up off of the internet, and um, it's several years ago. So if the details aren't the same, forgive. (laughs) But basically, uh, a young boy showed up at a school in Canada the first day, I, I think grade nine or something, wearing a pink shirt, polo shirt. And he took a bit of crap from the machos and... um, a couple of guys saw all this and they went on uh, internet, Facebook stuff or social media, contacted their friends and they and said to them, wear pink tomorrow and the next day. The school was awash in pink clothing and it ended the issue. The two boys ended up on uh, American national television on some show mm. uh, being interviewed about what they'd done. But it's it's a lovely story about direct nonviolent action. Simply create the alternative picture. And if we can start to confront the violence in ourselves, we can start to confront an alternative image in the violence in the world, I suppose. Yeah. Inner leads to outer over and over again. Well, thank you so much for your time today, George. That's been a fascinating conversation. And on my way home, I will be stopping to get a dream journal. <laughs> to, to I'm very glad to hear that, Dom. By my bed. <laughs> I look forward to doing that. Uh, also, if you do want to get in touch with this podcast, we do have an On The Way Facebook page, which you can track down, uh, which has updates on the uh, guests coming up and episodes that have been released. We'd also love to hear from you with any questions or guest suggestions you might have. Thank you so much, Peter, for your time today. Thanks, Dom. It's been great. And thank you so much, George. We'll have to get you on again one day. Well, it could happen. (laughs) Thank you. And we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.